you have your Bibles this morning, if you turn in them to the gospel uh, as recorded by Luke, chapter 9, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 37. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. And this morning, we're going to come uh, to the end of the Galilean portion of Jesus' ministry, as Luke records it. Now, this time uh, in Luke's gospel here up to the end of chapter 9 has been marked largely with Jesus' popularity. Jesus has been doing a lot of mighty works. This has given the folks hope that, well, at least some of the folk, the hope that God's kingdom is arriving, that God is at work to accomplish his purposes of making things right, dealing with the problem of sin, and fulfilling all that the prophets of old had said that God was going to do. But as the picture of what that kingdom was going to look like begins to take shape, Jesus is going to face opposition. It's already begun to bubble to the surface on those outside his group of followers, but today we're going to see even a bit of it begin to bubble up on the inside of the camp. And so as we go through the text this morning and get to verse 50, a breaking point, a turning point here in the Gospel of Luke, we want to look at uh, a bit of a character study of the man who comes with his son, Jesus and the disciples. So keep those three characters, two individuals and the group, in mind as we read this morning. So, beginning in verse 37, the Bible says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now remember, the mountain is the Mount of Transfiguration. We were there last Sunday. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, because he's my only child. The spirit seizes him, suddenly he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. Severely bruising him, it scarcely ever leaves him. It kind of literally even says shatters him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he took his disciples. Let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me forever is least among you. This one is great. John responded, Master. We saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us or follow with us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the explanation of your word. We pray that you would help us to, to see ourselves in these characters, to see 
who Jesus is making us to be as he conforms us to his image? Lord, I pray that you would this morning take your word and by your spirit apply it to our lives so that we can know the truth, that we can be set free by the truth, so that we can live the truth that is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus for your everlasting glory. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we engage this passage, a strange tension is beginning to develop. We're building up to the transfiguration. We're building upon, sorry, the transfiguration narrative where the glory of Jesus has been made known. It's been revealed. It's been bursting forth kind of just amazingly, miraculously, there really aren't even words to describe it, bursting forth of the divine glory and maybe the resurrection glory of Jesus so that the disciples can see the glory of God on the mountain and yet this time they live. The glory of God is being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. But even as we're on the mountain, things get a bit ominous. Because when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. As Matt explained last week, he's talking about listening to the last thing that Jesus taught. And that was about his impending journey to Jerusalem and his death. And along with that, Moses and Elijah speak to Jesus and prepare with Jesus for this exodus that is about to take place, this deliverance that is about to be enacted, this end of the exile that Jesus is going to bring. And as a lamb was slaughtered when the children of Israel walked out of Egypt and plundered the Egyptians, so too will a lamb be slaughtered when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. But the disciples clearly don't understand what's going on. The nine left behind at the foot of the mountain seem to have a faith that's kind of in crisis and faltering even to a degree. And even the disciples who went up on the mountain don't seem to grasp what is taking place. John, not Peter, thankfully this time, is going to stick his foot in his mouth at the end. And the tension mounts and mounts and mounts until the release comes in verse 51. When we're told that Jesus is turning to Jerusalem. From chapter 9, verse 51, really, till we get to the end of the book and Jesus ascends to the Father, all signs point That's Luke's preview of coming attractions. Jesus is going to take these Disciples who don't quite get what is going on, don't understand what the kingdom is all about. They're going to have a little bit of an argument here on the front end, usually what happens in the middle of the road trip, but there'll be a couple of those along the way anyway. They're going to take this road trip down to Jerusalem. They're going to walk, they're going to talk, and Jesus is going to teach them about what it means to be great in the kingdom that he's establishing, what this kingdom is all about, how this kingdom is going to come, and how they're going to take it to the ends of the earth. But for now, all signs point to Jerusalem. Well, let's start our character study with a desperate dad. Those of you that are parents, frankly, those of you that are human, I think, can understand the desperation that we see in chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. This man has this child whose life is hanging day by day by day in the balance. This man is, he's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what to do. He is is helpless and he is hopeless. And he's heard about a man named Jesus who's been doing some amazing things. He's cast out unclean spirits. He's raised people back to life. 
He's healed people who've had an issue of blood for 12 years. This man is amazing. He is powerful. He is great. Maybe he can help my kid. But his journey doesn't start out really great. Look at what happens there in verses 37 and 38. We're told the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, met Jesus. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out. Seems something has been going on here. The other Gospels explain a bit more of the background of this. Luke has shortened it a bit for us. He says, teacher, I beg you. There's no, he's not putting on airs. He's not trying to seem like he's got it under control. I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. And by the way, it's the same language that's been used in chapter 7 of the son of, widow of, Nain, of the widow of Nain that Jesus brought back to life and Jairus' daughter. This one and only, this beloved child. The spirit seizes him, verse 39. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him, shattering his body, breaking him. It scarcely ever leaves him, and then we get to the problem. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. These followers of yours that have, have been able in the past, like back in chapter 9, verse 1, they were given the authority to cast out demons, but now here we are at this moment, and they don't have it, and they've failed me, can you help? This week has been um, our boy's ninth birthday. And it, it causes you to remember things that you like to forget sometimes. And I have really identified with this desperate father this week. Because you see, when our, our boy was born, he was very sick. Very sick. On, on the first night of his life, he, he coded a couple of times. And, and all throughout the, the journey of his life, he's faced challenges. There's a picture actually... There on the, on, my, on the right there of me holding him as he's going to have an MRI on his brain because they thought that maybe he might have a tumor and the desperation that you feel. Now, he didn't, praise the Lord. But a five-year-old shouldn't have a neurologist. But that's the broken world we live in. So I can understand, like, there is no amount of money that that father would not have paid. There is no place that he wouldn't have gone. There is, no, there is no sacrifice that he wouldn't have made for that one and only son. And he gets there, and these disciples who've helped other people are at a loss. They don't know what to do. They are... They're flummoxed. But then Jesus comes down off the mountain. And everything changes. Because the powerful king has arrived. So the desperate dad meets the powerful king. And he begs because that's what you do when you come into the presence of the king. He says, I beg you, just look at him. Look at him. He has all of these problems. He is He's beaten and he's battered and we're all broken. Just look at him. And so Jesus does. He tells them to bring him to him. And notice what happens in verse 32, 42, sorry. Sorry. We see that he has the ability to heal. We see the ability of Jesus when the disciples can't do it. Even 
having been given the power of Jesus to do this, that Jesus always comes through. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down. It's what always happens when the demons come into the presence of Jesus. They lose it because they know that they are in the presence of the creator of the universe. They are in the presence of the of the God-man, and they have nothing that they can do. They have no authority any longer, and their time is up. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down, threw him into severe convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And notice how quickly and abruptly and immediately all of this happens. The disciples have been trying to figure out how do we get this to happen, and Jesus simply says, Stop it, you're done, the boy is healed. And then notice the phrase, gave him back to his father. The power of Jesus is such that he can give this boy back to his father. And notice what Luke has done here. It's really important because going back to chapter 7, it's the very same language that he uses to describe what Jesus does when he walks over to that funeral cot and they're carrying off this dead boy to be buried and he touches the cot and the boy sits up and he is awakened, he is alive. And the Bible says, Luke says, Jesus gave this one and only son back to his mama. And now, in just the same way, Jesus is giving this broken, battered, beaten boy back to his father, alive, well, and whole. And look at the response of the people. They were all astonished at the greatness of God. So here's what's happened. They're seeing the majesty, the glory, the amazing power and wonder of God that was displayed for the three disciples on the mountain in the revealing of the glory of Jesus. Now in the work of Jesus down at the bottom of the mountain, he has shown and revealed the glory of God in saving the life of this child. But that's not the end of the story. Because not only do we see the powerful king, we see the frustrated king. Look at what happens before this. Before Jesus heals the boy, he says something that is shocking. The man has said there in verse 40, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And then verse 41, Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and have to put up with you? Now, I think it's really important to recognize he's not talking to the dad. But he is talking to everybody else, and particularly the nine disciples that are there at the bottom of the mountain. Now let's read what he says again, because it's like, I'll have to say, like as I was reading this this week and studying, when you come the first or second time you read this and you see the man begs Jesus to heal his son, and then Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I have to be, put up with you and be here with you and deal with your nonsense? Like that is not what we normally expect kind, sweet, wonderful Jesus to say. Now, he heals the boy, and he says, bring the boy here, but there is something wrong. The language here that he uses of a perverse and unbelieving generation has echoes in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, which I'll have to say is the strangest national anthem a country's ever had. As, as you get to the end of Deuteronomy, we've had the three sermons, and now we're singing the national anthem in chapter 32, and the national anthem is weird because it's not celebrating the greatness, really, of the people or of the nation. It does talk about the greatness of God, but most of all, it's an indictment of the failure of the people that's going to happen in the future. 
Like, you're singing our national anthem, and it's like there's this self-fulfilling prophecy that's going to unfold of we're going to do stupid things, we're going to follow idols, and God's going to really be aggravated, and he's going to punish us and send us into exile. This is not great. We're going to sing the national anthem, and then we're going to do what it says, even though we really shouldn't. It's nuts. But they still don't get it. Kind of like the disciples. These nine disciples have been there at the foot of the mountain. Jesus has been on the mountain. Think about the similarities of this, particularly with the Exodus motif that we saw last week. This is a lot like the children of Israel when they're at the bottom of the mountain in Exodus 33. 32 and 33. When, you know, that amazing calf jumps out of the fire. How did that happen? They don't know what to do. They are in a crisis of faith. They are in this unbelief. And he says, how long do I got to put up with this? Not much longer. But what's going to happen in between is going to make all the difference. That leads us then to the sacrificing Savior. We have a powerful king. We have a frustrated king. But thankfully, we have a sacrificing Savior. Look at how this unfolds. In verse 43, we're told, in the first part, they were all astonished at the greatness of God. And then Luke tells us, in the middle part of verse 43, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples. So think about that for a second. All this, like, like, just imagine. You've got a crowd of people there. The, the disciples have not been able to heal this boy. This boy has been convulsing. He's been throwing himself down. Jesus heals him immediately. This boy is whole. He's healthy. He's, everything has been made right as it relates to this possession of the demon. Everybody's shouting and hollering and happy. And while all this is going on, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Boys, let this sink in. Get your mind in the right place. Get your thoughts in the right direction. Listen up, because here is what you need to hear. And look at what he says. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. And really, probably better translated here, delivered over, given over, handed over, into the hands of men. This is now the second time. And he's going to have to tell them a third time. I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Now that might not be. We've already seen Peter fail. Go from the front of the class to getting kicked out of the class for nonsense. You're the Messiah, but then he rebukes Jesus. And Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus even called him Satan. Like, we know this has not gone well before, and now he says, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men. I am going to Jerusalem to die. And that is the right story. It is the story that God has written, and it's the story that is going to change the world. We have a sacrificing Savior, and what sets Jesus apart as the God-man is that, that there is this balance. We've always seen mostly to this point is power. But what we're going to see is the passion. He's making his way to Jerusalem to die. He's going to give his life as a ransom for the many. And his power and his weakness in sacrifice are always perfectly balanced as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. The people were amazed at the glory, majesty, splendor of God on display at the power of Jesus to cast out an unclean spirit. But at the very moment that everyone is reveling in the revealing of the glory of God, Jesus says the true glory of God, the greatest revealing of the glory of God is going to happen when God hands me over to death. 
right in the middle of all of the revelry, there is a punch squarely in the face that this is not a kingdom where power is used for the sake of power, but where the Son of God is going to give himself. He loves his people, and he's going to die in their place. And his power will be most fully on display when he looks the weakest, the most powerless, and when the full weight of our sin is poured out upon him in one place for a very short period of time, the all of the evil of all of the world on the Son of God so that those who believe in him can go free in a free pardon of sin, can know new life, can have the healing that this young man had, but one that doesn't just last for the, the time of his physical life, but one that will last into eternity. And the shocking twist... As he says this, the Son of Man is about to be handed over, delivered over into the hands of men. This one who is adored for giving this desperate father his one and only best loved son. Is in full knowledge of the path that stands before him, is going to Jerusalem, and his own father is about to hand over his one and only best loved son so that ruined sinners like you and I can have the penalty removed, penalty for sin removed from our accounts. And not only is the father going to give over his son, he's going to take him back again. The son that bears our sin, who stands in our place, the son who is the one and only son of God is going to be handed over by the father but the father is going to take him back for himself. He's going to raise him from the dead so that he can be declared, so that we can be declared right before God, so that we can have a place in God's family, so that we can receive of his spirit, so that we can cry out to the one true and living God and call him father just like Jesus did. The one and only best loved son is going to be handed over to men so that we can become the sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. And for that, we should shout with praise and joy for all that he has done. But there's a problem still. We've got a group of dumbfounded disciples. They don't get it. They just don't get it. Notice what Luke says in chapter 9, verse 45. But they did not understand this statement. I think having told them twice, you can understand why Jesus is like, how long do I have to put up with you? Well, 10 more chapters of teaching, and they're still not going to get it, I'm sorry to say. It was concealed from them. So they couldn't grasp it. For whatever reason, whether we really don't know exactly what Luke is saying. Is God concealing this? Is it just their own sinfulness? Is it probably a bit of both? But maybe there is some grace in the fact that they couldn't get it. You know, I showed you that picture of when Trace was born, and, and, and I'll just be honest. You know, I don't know if it's like legit to have desperation after the fact, but God really didn't let me understand what in the world was going on. Like I, I've watched enough ERs that some of you are too young to know what that is, to know what it means when somebody codes. And when the doctor told us that looking at the ground, 
that next morning, he coded a couple of times last night like he was talking about the sunshine outside. God in his grace didn't let me understand what that was because I would have been, you know, in the fetal position myself. There is grace in sometimes not knowing. I mean, you know, I preached. He was born on a Friday. I preached on a Sunday, and if I die before Amber, it'll say something that I said that morning. There's a lot of stupid in my family as it relates to preaching. I mean, my dad preached on the, the morning that my mom was giving birth to my sister. He left and went and preached. So there's a lot of stupid as it relates to births in my family and preaching. I said from the, this pulpit, it was no big deal if I die before she does. She'll put that on my tombstone because I had no idea what was going on. Nothing. Nothing. That's God's grace to us sometimes. And for them, maybe it was. If they knew what was going to happen, maybe they wouldn't be able to take the walk to Jerusalem. But they're going to know, and they're going to be empowered for an amazing work of God. You see, their failure isn't the last word. So what does Jesus do? They're failing, they're faltering, they're having a crisis of faith. Well, he's going to give them something that Amber likes to give Trace and Hallie and frankly sometimes me when we go to do things in public with people. She likes to call it pre-activity encouragement. So he's going to give them a little pre-activity encouragement before we go on our journey to Jerusalem. So notice what happens. All of this has been going on. Then we get to verse 46. Like, Jesus is exasperated. He's frustrated. He's told them he's going to Jerusalem to die. They didn't understand it. And we're going to get real clear illustration of that. They're going to do some really dumb things, but we're going to get to the pre-activity encouragement here in just a minute. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them, but Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, like this seems like they're over here, they're having their little bickering, you know, even before the road trip starts. Jesus is over here, and Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what's going on, and he's going to call them on it. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is greatest. Preactivity encouragement number one, the one who is least among you is greatest, and he uses a child that really had no status, really had no place, was not, frankly, viewed with quite even the, the you know, um, well, the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, if it wasn't your kid, nobody really cared. But here we see an upside, a picture of the upside-down nature of the kingdom. In our world, in the first century world, in the 21st century world, in our culture, in our relationships, within ourselves, we think, when left to our own devices, that greatness comes from striving and taking. Left to our own devices, apart from the work of the Spirit, whether it be education, training, whatever it is, if we get it, we're going to take it and we're going to use it for ourselves. And the reality is that in all likelihood, we're going to take it and use it for ourselves at the expense of other people. Maybe polite society will keep us from doing it in the open or you know, in, a, in a brutal, honest, straightforward way. But the fact is, we're going to try to figure out a way to take what we have, to get more, to take, to take, to take. The way to get more power is to take it. If you got a little, you want a little more, and there's never enough. That is completely the opposite of kingdom power and kingdom life. And you can understand why it's going to be difficult for them to Embrace it and, frankly, grasp it. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Greatness and power in the kingdom of God doesn't come from striving and taking, but from giving of yourself, sacrificing your desires and considering other people better than yourself. If you want to be viewed as great by God, that's the path. 
The problem is, that's not the way the world's going to view it. And to be perfectly honest, sadly, so often, we see worldly paths to power pursued in our relationships and not this way of Jesus. We see worldly paths to power pursued in churches. We see worldly paths to power pursued in conventions. We saw this week, those of you that are members of Christ's Fellowship, a letter that Matt signed related to things that are going on, and I'm going to call it the Southern Baptist Convention. While we don't use that name, we call ourselves Great Commission Baptists. We really haven't embodied that very well this week. We don't deserve it, frankly. Power is dangerous. If you're tempted to it, watch out. Because it takes good, I hope, and godly, I hope, people. And it causes us in the day-to-day, in our relationships, and even on a convention-wide level to begin to calculate the value of people in ways that aren't keeping with the image of God that they possess because God made them. And we can begin in our individual lives, in our relationships, in our churches, wherever we find ourselves, to adopt this, well, the ends justify the means. The goal is worth the compromise. But brothers and sisters, you will never find that in God's Word. Your character, who you are in Christ, who he has made you to be in him is never worth the compromise of your integrity, no matter the calculation that you make. And I'll tell you, your pastors are never, we we are never going to make the claim that we're always going to get it right on every occasion. And this is the one thing that I think we would all covenant together to say that under God, the ends are never going to justify the means. People made in the image of God matter more than the trappings of a building or a church or a convention or money. Never money. It can all go away to do the right thing. As we walk under the authority of Jesus in the power of his spirit, submitting to his word, it is worth it. Pray that God would work and that God would would bring to light what has been done that is wrong, that it would be cleansed, and that people who have been mistreated will be shown that the love of Jesus from a people that maybe for a while have turned their back on them. And that God would be glorified 
that God would be glorified because sin is exposed and called what it is. And Jesus will say, even as he uses a child here, that it's better for a millstone to be thrown around someone's neck and thrown into the sea than for one of the least of these, one of these children, to be caused to stumble. And that should cause us to quake. But then we get to the last one. What some Bibles titled The Strange Exorcist, and I will be honest, that that seems like an odd title, and sometimes I wonder, is there any other kind? Look at what the scripture says. John responded, now think about this. John was on the mountain, by the way. They've come down, they've argued, Jesus has corrected them. He's used this child to show them how off-base they are about this argument about the greatest. And then John says, hey, Jesus, hold on a minute. Let me see if I can make this even worse. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us, follow with us. Now, notice the irony here. This unnamed person, this strange exorcist, the least, not even named, has been successful at accomplishing an act under the authority of Jesus that none of these 12 who've been walking with him for more than a year now could do. You see, where you stand in relationship to the king, your status as the 12, it doesn't matter. What matters is faith in the power of Jesus to accomplish his purposes. They've been stumped. This dude's casting out demons. It's like, Jesus, you'll never guess what happened and you'll never know. You're going to be surprised at what we did, but you're going to be proud of us. He was casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop. And Jesus is like, you idiot. They're going to hinder him kind of like they do the children a little bit later on when they want to come to Jesus. And then Jesus says this really strange thing. The last of our pre-activity, and you can call it encouragement if you want, but it's not very encouraging, frankly. Whoever is not against you is for you. Wait, what? But that's kind of how bad it is. This is what you can expect as we walk down the road to Jerusalem. Whoever's not against you is for you. Or like an old Navy veteran told me 30 years ago, this is kind of his any port in the storm. If they're not against you, if they're not wanting to kill you, they're for you. Thanks for that encouraging word as we head toward Jerusalem. But here's the problem. Did all of us have? It displays itself in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, in our conventions, is that when we look at that balance, Jesus has it perfect power and passion. Ours is out of whack. You can see the slide there. I chose stones because we're pretty blockheaded, frankly. We tend to get self way heavier than others. And all this pre-activity encouragement was not just for the disciples. It was for us. Because our activity is to go out this week into our homes, into the relationships that we have in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our places where there are various levels of authority that we have, and we are to use whatever authority we have, not for ourselves, but for the good of others. Which leads me to this conclusion, our final slide. I don't know about you, 
But this story in some ways is exceedingly encouraging, but also quite frankly convicting. The story is framed and filled with failure on the part of the disciples. And maybe as we've read this story, the details of your story feel frustratingly similar. What was once a vibrant faith in which you could see the power of the Lord on full display, like with the disciples only just 50 verses before, has now morphed into something that feels weak and frail. And maybe today you you, you feel like you just want to give up. Or maybe it's a little different. Maybe you've seen the failure of others and it becomes cynical and cold. You see, this story that's filled with failure on the outside and on the inside and everywhere around is... Well, it's our story, but it's not the last story. You see, the same Jesus who took these broken and battered disciples on a journey to Jerusalem is still calling his people like you and me to take the same journey with him to learn what the kingdom is really like. To take the journey to Jerusalem and beyond. To walk with Jesus to consider the journey, to take a few moments this morning as we come to a time of communion. And if our servers will come and begin that, that would be wonderful this morning. That We would take a few moments to ponder and remember what Jesus has done for us in our behalf. To remember his death for our sins. To to take stock of, of the unconfessed sin that is plaguing us, that is frustrating us, that is making us feel like failures. But in looking to the cross, finding hope that the failure is not final and that this one who was given up, who was raised and ascended, is going to return in power. Because you see, there will be a time when this meal will no longer be taken because we will be gathered in his presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as we enter into this time of taking the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus invites all who have placed their faith in him and are walking in fellowship with him and other believers to participate. If You've not placed your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Please refrain from participating in this meal. But in these moments of quietness, consider him. Realize that he will fix your brokenness. Repent of your sin. Believe in him. And you will have eternal life. And then tell somebody to your right or your left, and they will rejoice with you over what the Lord has done. So as we take it in a moment, I'm going I'm to read a text from Luke 24, actually. And then when I'm done, I want you to just ponder who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, his resurrection power, his glorious return. And as you feel led, take that on your own. And then in a moment, we're going to sing... We're going to sing in praise of the one true and living God because he's revealed himself in his son 
his one and only best loved son whom he gave over for our sins. Listen to what the scriptures say in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. Jesus has gone on a journey with these men on the day of his resurrection. And they've reached Emmaus. He said to them, they've been talking about the Messiah dying. How foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary, this was all God's plan, for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged them, stay with us because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So we went in to stay with him. It was he, as he reclined us at the table with them, that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem after having just walked to Emmaus. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then notice what they say in verse 35. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he had made known, he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. My prayer as we take this supper is that we would have Jesus revealed to us in the breaking of the bread as we remember his sacrifice for our sin, his glorious resurrection, and his soon coming return. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, help us see you in your glory. Help us see you in your majesty but a majesty that is only reached through death for sinners. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as we eat this bread and drink from this cup that reminds us of your death until we drink new in your kingdom fully realized that we would see you and know that you alone satisfy and that you would satisfy us today for the rest of our lives for your glory we pray amen amen